The lights begin to dim, and the low murmur of the crowd slowly dies down. In the stillness, the soft sounds of a piano emerge. The gentle strumming of a guitar joins in as lights begin to illuminate the stage. A stylishly dressed female steps forward and draws a microphone to her lips. With closed eyes, she starts to sing in serene, passionate tones. Quiet at first, the melody begins to grow louder, progressing high and swelling with each word. The piano guitar join in this crescendo. At its highest point, the drums suddenly burst into action with an explosion of light and sound. A new rhythm transforms the song from peaceful to powerful, ushering in an atmosphere of unreserved emotion and drawing in the crowd. The spotlights are now at their full brightness, revealing several musicians who had been waiting for this moment. The audience sways to the music enraptured and the feelings created by this skillful performance. Where am I? The fact that this description could equally apply to a modern worship service and to a Taylor Swift concert should cause us great cause for concern. What would the Christians in the New Testament have thought about such a production? Did the apostles ever play in a worship band? Would the early church have considered praising God uh, in any way remotely resembling such a performance? Is this truly what God desires from his church? Today what we are wanting to consider is the idea of praise versus performance. This is the, the third lesson in a series in which we're talking about God's church versus my church. And what, what we're talking about uh, in this series of lessons is trying to, to challenge our perspective of what church is supposed to be. And the main question that we're wanting to ask in all of these lessons is not what am I looking for, in a local church, but what is God looking for in his church? We talked about uh, big business versus benevolence. We talked about uh, soul saving versus salesmanship. And we're going to, Lord willing, a month from now, talk about truth versus tradition. But today we're gonna talk about praise versus performance. Today we wanna consider what God desires from our worship as a church. And I wanna make it clear that our intention in these lessons is not simply to, to look out at everybody else around us and point out everything that everybody else is doing wrong and how we're doing what God wants us to do. That, that's not the point. No, in, in fact, first and foremost, we're wanting to challenge our perspective. And we are going to address some issues that may uh, be more blatantly demonstrated in the, the worship band culture of our day. But I think the same issues threaten our mindset and our attitude as we think about our praise, maybe in some more subtle ways. And so I hope that as we consider uh, the type of praise that God desires from us, that uh, it will be helpful to all of us to, to think about the focus and the purpose of our worship. And it may seem like a, an odd place to start, but I want to start here in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we first see this idea that not all forms of worship are pleasing to God. There, there's a very pervasive idea in the religious world of today that worship can take any form that I want it to. That w whatever way I feel I'm able to best express myself to the Lord, that can be worship, whether that be painting or, or dancing or playing an instrument or performing some type of drama or multimedia production, that any of that 
Uh, if that's how I best express myself, that can be worship. Well, is that a biblical idea? That, that anything can be worship? I want us to notice, first of all, uh, that our very first record of worship in Genesis chapter 4 shows us that there is a worship that is pleasing to God and a worship that is not pleasing to God. What we just read here about Cain and Abel, it says in verse 3, beginning, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. From the very beginning, we see that there is a worship that is pleasing and a worship that is displeasing. Why? Uh, well, there's a few indications in the text why Cain's worship might have not been pleasing to the Lord. We, we see that Abel did bring the firstlings of the flock and the fat portions. It seems he is bringing his best to the Lord. There's no uh, direct indication that Cain was bringing his best. Maybe that's part of it. Also, uh, it says that God had regard for Abel and for his offering, and not for Cain and for his offering. I, I think we can assume here that this primarily has to do with the, the heart of the worshiper. We can look in Hebrews chapter 11 and see that Abel offered his offering by faith. The implication would be that Cain did not. Uh, and as we look down later in verse 7, God says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted off? Obviously, it, Cain had the information that he needed to give God the proper type of of worship. But whatever the reason may be, the principle is revealed to us that not all worship is equally pleasing or acceptable in God's sight. And if we want to go to the next book of our Bibles, Exodus, we see this same principle shows up again in Exodus chapter 32. You remember how once Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai and he had been gone for quite some time, the people began to wonder whether or not he was going to come back, and they built for themselves a golden calf. But I want you to notice here in Genesis 32, verse 4 through 5, who it was that they were worshiping. It says of Aaron, He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Um, now, depending on what translation uh, of the scriptures you're, you're reading there, some might actually say Yahweh or Jehovah there. My version has all capital Lord, and that's an indication in the New American Standard that this is the covenant name of God, Jehovah. Who were they worshiping here? I think many times I had thought, you know, here they're worshiping some other god. Well, no, at least in Aaron's mind and what he tells the people, they are worshiping Jehovah. They've made this idol in honor of Jehovah. Is Jehovah honored by that? Well, 3,000 dead Israelites would witness that no, he wasn't. Idol craftsmanship was not an acceptable form of worship to God. And so again, we see that not all forms of worship are, are acceptable to the Lord. If you want to turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10, the third book in our Bibles. Leviticus chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we read about Nadab and Abihu. 
Starting in verse 1, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died there before the Lord. Are all forms of worship acceptable in God's sight? No, here they offered some form of worship that was not what God had instructed them. Here we have the, the right people, we have the right place, we have the right method, but the wrong content. Here they had uh, corrupted the, the, the recipe for, for the, the fire or the incense that they were to be burning here that God had expressly ordered them to give. And we might think, well, why, why is that such a big deal? Why... why you know, is this so serious that they offered something slightly different than what God instructed them to? That, that seems like a rather small matter. Well, notice what God says in verse 3. It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, And is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. What was the issue here? I think we're going to see this manifest itself in many different ways forms of worship, but the primary issue that led them to, to deviate from what God had instructed was a lack of respect, a lack of reverence for God and his will and what it is that he desired. And so the primary issue here is that if we want to honor God, express reverence to God, we need to express that to him by following what he has told us he wants. We need not to deviate from what he has commanded and worshiped to him. And we can probably cite many other examples throughout the Old Testament scriptures. We just did the first three books of the Bible. We can probably go through many others. But let's fast forward all the way to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, which we talked about just recently uh, in some studies. Malachi chapter 1, what is the problem uh, that Malachi addresses? Displeasing worship. And why is this worship displeasing to God? Well, part of that was manifested in the, the form that that worship took. They were offering the, the blind and the sick and the lame. And God tells them in verse 10, uh, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God says, board up the doors of the temple. I don't want that kind of worship. Instead of expressing honor and reverence to God, what was it expressing? It was expressing a disregard for what God wanted. It was expressing uh, uh, despising God's name rather than honoring his name. Instead of honoring him by giving him the, the, the unblemished firstborn that he had instructed, here the, their heart problem showed itself by deviating in the type of worship that God had instructed. We see the same problem among the Pharisees in the New Testament. Matthew 15, we read here on um, verse 7 through 9, Jesus says, You hypocrites, rightly did I say a prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In vain do they worship me. Here there is a, a worthless worship. Why is this worship worthless? Well, most foundationally, their heart is not where it needs to be. How is that manifesting itself? 
Well, instead of following God's teaching, they are teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. They are letting their own ideas, their own thoughts, trump what God has instructed them. And that here is what is uh, causing this worship to be displeasing in God's sight. Or at least that is the symptom of the heart problem that is causing this to be displeasing in God's sight. I'm going to look at one other New Testament passage, 1 Corinthians 11. If you want to turn your Bibles with me there. 1 Corinthians 11, here again we see God's people are going through many of the correct motions. They are eating the, the Lord's Supper, and yet Paul says, this isn't the Lord's Supper. This is not the Lord's Supper at all. Look with me in verse 20 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this, I will not praise you. Here, the Christians in Corinth had a problem in their worship uh, of having an improper focus, an improper purpose in what they were doing. They had made the Lord's Supper into a common meal uh, to feed their own physical appetites. And here, again, we see a heart problem, a wrong focus, but it was manifesting itself in, in how they were going about that. The, the way they conducted the Lord's Supper was no longer about remembering Christ. It was no longer Christ-focused. It was self-focused, about serving their own appetites. Well, how serious is that? Look down in verse 27. Paul writes, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I'd say that's pretty serious, wouldn't you? Here, in all of these examples that we've just looked at, there's a, there's a common thread of a lack of respect, a lack of focus on what God desires from his people in worship. It manifests itself as a, as a golden calf, as strange fire, as sick and lame sacrifices, as man-made traditions, as self-indulgent Lord's Supper meals. But the, the problem in all of these, these are all a symptom of a deeper heart problem that... Here, we're not focusing on what does God want, what honors God, but maybe what's easiest for me, what's most convenient for me, what is most enjoyable and fulfilling for me, what do I think is a good idea. And so whether it be worldly influences or negligence or convenience or pride, the core problem is letting <coughs> worship revolve around us instead of revolve around God. No, not all forms of worship are pleasing in God's sight. If we want to know what's pleasing to God, we need to listen to him, to honor his request, his commands. But I want to address one maybe side point here. We might say, but I thought all of life was worship. I think part of this idea that any means of expressing ourselves can be worship comes from a confusion over the definition of worship itself. Because the word worship is used in two slightly different ways throughout the Bible. It can be used, number one, to reflect a specific act of offering 
or expressing reverence, devotion, and praise to God. We see this uh, in examples like Genesis 22 and verse 5, where Abraham is going to offer up Isaac as God commanded, and he tells the people, we are going to go to the mountain to worship, and we're going to return. Here's a specific act that was going to have a beginning and an end, and then he was going to return. Uh, you look in Acts 24 and verse 11, Paul Speaking there before Felix uh, says that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Here he was going there to perform certain acts in honor, in offering to God. And so there's a sense in which this word worship applies to specific acts of expressing reverence, of offering devotion and praise to God. Now, having said that, there, certainly the word worship is applied as well to living out our day-to-day -day lives in a way that is pleasing in God's sight, that shows honor to him and brings glory to his name. Think about Romans 12 and verse 1, where uh, Paul urges the brethren to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, the New American Standard says. Uh, there's this idea that our entire lives, our every moment, our every day, our every breath is to be lived in such a way that brings glory and honor to God. We might look at Hebrews 13 and verse 16, where we're told, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we have this parallel of this Old Testament act of offering sacrifice to God, and we're told that that's really supposed to describe every aspect of our lives. Everything that we do in service to other people is to bring honor and glory to God. However, I think we, we make an error when we mix these two ideas together. That just because all of my life is to be lived in such a way that brings glory and honor to God, that means I can take any aspect of my life and bring it into the assembly and make it a formal act of expressing worship to God. Let, let me use an illustration. This is not a perfect illustration, but I hope it will help us get the, the, the point here. Part of working in a restaurant is washing dishes. In fact, if you want to keep your customers healthy and happy, you better hope that you're being cleanly and, and washing dishes and, and, and keeping that uh, a clean, a sanitary place. However, that doesn't mean that your customer is going to be happy if you get some dishwater, pour it in a cup, and set it on their tray. No, when, when you offer something directly to them, there, there's something that they've requested that they want in that worship. Uh, There's not a perfect illustration, but I think we, we understand this idea that, yes, all of my life is to be centered around pleasing God, is to be centered around giving him glory, reflecting his character, honoring his name in the way I live my life from day to day. But that doesn't mean that when God has requested, that God has commanded me to perform some specific act of worship, especially within the assembly, that all of a sudden I can bring any other aspect of my life and make it a formal act of worship. Now, I think as we look at what God has expressed to us in the New Testament, there are certain acts that he wants us to perform directly as offering praise to him, especially within the assembly. And so I think we need to be careful about mixing these two ideas together. Um, that's not to say that specific acts of worship are somehow more important. In fact, 
if, if we have one without the other, uh, we want to make sure first and foremost that we're living our lives in a way that is glorifying God. Then and only then will any act of worship be pleasing in God's sight. But I think we need to be careful about combining these two ideas and bringing any and every aspect of my life into the assembly, into a formal act of worship to God. We need to be careful that worship is not revolving around us. That what we do in worship to God is not determined by what men want, by what I want. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 is kind of the, the verse that this series on God's church versus my church has revolved around. This is where Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But these things don't mix. You can't serve two masters. We, we can't be giving the proper praise and devotion to God uh, if we are focused simply on, on seeking out the favor of men. Either we are seeking the favor of men or the favor of God. You might say, well, isn't worship supposed to be enjoyable? Isn't worship supposed to be uplifting and meaningful to me? Yes, by all means. But there is a difference in molding worship to make it enjoyable and meaningful to us and molding our hearts so that we find value and enjoyment in genuine biblical worship the way that God desires. The problem is a matter of focus. Who is our target audience? Is the target audience these people? Is it the, the people in the world around us? Or is the target audience God? In our praise, are we genuinely seeking to please him and to bring him glory? Jesus had some very harsh things to say about man-focused religion. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 here Jesus talks about three different aspects of our, our service or worship unto the Lord. It says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Skip down a, a little ways to verse 5. Again, he says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Down in verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Certainly, we do want to shine our lights. Uh, earlier on in chapter 5 of Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about shining our lights before men. Certainly, we, we want people to come into this assembly and see genuine love for one another. We want them to see sincerity and devotion unto the Lord. And as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, we want them to, to fall down and say, God is certainly among you. Brethren, that can't be our primary goal. That can't be our primary focus, is what do people see among us? 
First and foremost, it needs to be what does God see among us. What people see among us is secondary. It is most important that God is truly among us, not that people think that God is among us. And when we try to make our image to other people and what other people see the primary focus, we've missed the point. Now, shining our lights and other people seeing God work among us is a natural result, a secondary result, of making sure that we're doing what God wants us to be doing in the first place. That needs to be our focus. If our worship is focused on Instagram-worthy moments or tweetable quotes or around making sure that people enjoy themselves and want to come back, we have missed the point entirely and we are receiving our reward in full. If we're focused simply on men, then God is not pleased with us. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul warned many times against the stealthy influence of self-serving religion. He writes to Timothy here, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Now, I don't think it would be inconsistent with the attitudes warned against here in this passage if we were to apply it to our subject by saying, for the time will come when they will not endure sound worship, but wanting to have their ears tickled will accumulate for themselves worship bands in accordance with their own desires. That the principle that he's talking about has many different applications for us today. But the core problem is that we are focused on what it is that fulfills us. We're focused on what it is that is pleasing to us, to our senses. And we need to seriously ask ourselves, what has a deeper influence on the type of worship we offer to God, the musical tastes of the culture in which we live, or God's will revealed to us in the scriptures? I'm not saying that every song that we sing needs to... uh, be in the exact musical style present in the first century world. But I do believe that our songs need to be most deeply influenced and molded by accomplishing the purpose God has defined for them within his word. That needs to be the primary influence on what kind of worship we bring to God. (coughs) What has God told us he wants? And that needs to be what is molding the type of worship that we are bringing to him first and foremost. We need to let God tell us what pleases him. Turn your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I guess I do have it on the screen if you'd rather just read it up there. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1, we read, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. What is the first step in acceptable worship to God? Listen. What does God want? What has he said he wants? Here, this picture that we have is of those who think they already know what God wants, and they're bringing their sacrifices, and they haven't stopped to listen to what God says he wants. We're told they don't know they're doing evil. Not too long ago, it might have been around Valentine's Day or maybe around Aaron's birthday, I can't remember, but Aaron and I went to a restaurant 
took her to a, a, a nicer restaurant uh, we don't normally uh, go to, and they, they had nicer cuts of, of meat and steak and tenderloin. And so we, we were ordering some of these. Uh, I, I believe Aaron was getting some type of tenderloin. And if you know Aaron, she does not like blood. She doesn't like pink. She doesn't like anything raw. She wants it to be cooked all the way through. So she ordered her, her tenderloin well done. And the waitress said, well, normally we, we cook them medium to medium well. They're, they're a lot better that way. I, you know, I, I think if you tried it, you'd, you'd really like it. And Erin, wanting to be sweet and not pre press anything, she said, well, okay, we, we can do medium well. I ended up eating most of that steak <laughs> or most of that tenderloin. Erin did not like it at all. Here, the, this waitress thought she knew exactly what Erin was going to like, but she didn't listen to what Erin said she wanted. I'm afraid sometimes we're like that in our relationship with the Lord. That we think, well, God, I think you'll really like this. I, I'm pretty sure that God's going to be pleased with this. It's really meaningful and, 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 and passionate, and, and you just have to be there. It, it, it's going to be really good. I'm sure that God is going to be pleased with this. Brethren, we need to stop and let God tell us what he's pleased with. We need to let God tell us what he desires. And if he's told us what he wants, it's because that is what he wants. He didn't make a mistake. David learned this lesson in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. You remember when David uh, transports the Ark of the Covenant uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And the, the first time they are taking it from this man's house and his two sons, uh, Ahio and Uzzah, are set in charge of, of transporting the Ark and they put it on an ox cart. And as they are bringing the ark on this ox cart, the, the oxen stumble and Uzzah reaches out to help support the ark and God strikes him dead. And later on in 1 Chronicles 15, when David is looking back on this and he's preparing to move the ark a second time, notice what he says. Speaking to the Levites, he says, Because you did not carry it at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. We did not seek him by the proper order. Here, what, what was the, the problem? Well, we're, we're told that Uzzah was struck dead because of his irreverence in 1 Samuel 6. What, what, what irreverence is being indicated here? Well, here for, for the last 20 years, uh, the ark had been in the house of Abinadab, the father of, of Uzzah and Ahio, and their brother Eleazar had been consecrated to take care of the ark. If anybody should have known how the ark was to be treated, certainly Uzzah and Ahio, who are guiding the ark, should have known. Certainly the king, David, should have known. He should have sought out what God said about this. But instead of seeking out what it is that God said he wanted, here they opt for maybe convenience, maybe for what seems most efficient, most logical to him. 
you know, if, if we put it on this ox cart, it's going to be a lot quicker than the Levites carrying it on their shoulders. It's going to be a lot more efficient. Uh, you know, those Levites in this long trip, they're going to get kind of worn out carrying this all the way. It seems logical that we would use this cart. In fact, the Philistines, when they brought back the ark, uh, when it had been uh, stolen before, they put it on an ox cart. All the nations are doing it. Certainly, God would be pleased with this. They didn't seek God according to what he had said. And that reflected a heart problem, an irreverence for God. When we start letting our own ideas, however good we might think those ideas are, be the primary influence and in what we bring into the assembly and what we bring to worship uh, God with, then we are not giving God and his word, his revealed will, the proper respect and honor that it deserves. God has told us what he wanted. We need to make sure that that is what is directing us. Truly having reverence for God means respecting his commands and the patterns he has given us. Truly seeking God means seeking out his will revealed in the scriptures and listening to his words. And so what is it that God desires? We could talk for many more lessons about what it is that God has told us he wants in our service, specifically in our assemblies and worship to him. I want to just focus in the time that we have remaining on what God has said he wants in song worship, because I think that this is probably the primary area that we get into this struggle between performance, uh, man-centered worship, and God-centered worship. Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll start reading in verse 17. Here we read, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. What does God want what has he told us he wants he told us he wants singing he wants our voices expressing gratitude and praise to him and he wants our hearts making melody Connie Barrett and Housen in their commentary on this verse point out that throughout the whole passage there is a contrast implied between the heathen and the Christian practices for example, when we, you meet, let your enjoyment consist not in fullness of wine, but in fullness of the Spirit. Let your songs be not the drinking songs of heathen feasts, but psalms and hymns. And their accompaniment, not the music of the lyre, but the melody of the heart. While you sing them to the praises, not of Bacchus or Venus, but the Lord Jesus Christ. I think here we, we do see that connection. Why, you know, why, why is it in verse 18 that just before talking about uh, their song worship, he talks about not being filled with wine but being filled with the Spirit? Well, in much of the worship around them, much of the heathen uh, or the pagan worship, that's exactly what influenced their worship. Here they had these drunken feasts of, of praise and, and, and riotous worship to the gods. And Paul's saying that that's not what we're focused on. Here, our primary influence is the Spirit. And we are worshiping in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord. What does God want above all else? 
He wants the melody of our hearts and the fruit of our lips. In our case, we might say he doesn't want strobe light, fog machine, guitar solo, stage performance, worship. He wants our voices to communicate words of edification and praise. He wants that to genuinely express the reverence and devotion of our hearts. That's the sound that pleases his ear. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 gives us similar instructions. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What is our worship supposed to be here? It's supposed to be an overflow of God's word, expressing itself in language that teaches and admonishes and expresses genuine gratitude to God. Hebrews 13 and verse 15 here again, using this illustration of, of sacrifice, he says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. In the context of, of Hebrews 13, this is not the, the fruit of the field or the fruit of the flock. This is the fruit of our lips. We might say not the fruit of our fingertips, but the fruit of lips expressing thanksgiving and praise to God. And this is exactly what we see in the New Testament church. You see the, the type of heartfelt worship that, that Paul and Silas were able to, to give God even in the midst of a Philippian jail. You see in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 that the contrast between the self-focused, self-exalting worship and, and assemblies that were going on in Corinth as they were speaking in tongues trying to exalt themselves. And, and Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 13, Verse 1, if you have not love, you have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And that was a bad thing. <laughs> he goes on in chapter 14 to talk about the type of edification and encouragement that was supposed to be going on in that worship, rather than it being self-focused. And so, brethren, if we let God's word be our only guide in what type of worship we are offering to God, what would that look like? Every time we come together, let's think seriously about whether or not we are giving God what he has asked for. And I think while this may manifest itself outwardly more readily uh, in many different forms of, of stage performance worship that, that we see among us, I, I, I think as we look inwardly, the attitude and the heart problem that we're talking about is one, in whatever manifestation it takes, that takes the focus off of God and what he wants and whether or not he is being pleased, whether or not he is being glorified, and puts the focus on to us. I enjoy singing. I enjoy making melody and, and harmony with other people. But brethren, if we ever take the focus off of the sentiments that we are expressing to God and whether or not he is pleased with the, the melody that's going on in our hearts, then we have missed the point entirely. We need to make sure that as we consider our worship day in, day out, as we consider our worship assemblies, our focus is what does God want? What is pleasing to him? It wasn't a golden calf. It wasn't strange fire. It wasn't the lame, the sick, and the blind. What does God want of us today? First and foremost, he wants our hearts. 
He wants hearts that are genuinely devoted to him, that are genuinely seeking his will, that are bringing him the type of, of, of praise, the, the, the singing and melody that, that he desires from his people. What about you today? Are you giving God the devotion and praise, the worship that he deserves in your life? We, we talked earlier, there are two different aspects of this idea of worship. And perhaps the most foundational is whether or not we are living our lives in a way that is honoring and praising to God. No offering of worship unto God can be pleasing if we aren't first living out a life that is honoring his name. If you recognize today that there's something in your life that is uh, not honoring to God, that is displeasing in his sight, some sin that is separating you from God, know that in God's grace it doesn't have to be that way, that God wants to be reconciled to you. That God wants to welcome you back to him. If you're willing to repent of your sins, to turn back to him, you can be forgiven. If you've never turned your life over to the Lord, you need to have your sins washed away in baptism. By God's grace, you can bury the old man of sin. You can be raised to walk in newness of life, a life that will last for all eternity in God's presence. If you need to make some change today, uh, don't leave these doors without making it. If your change is of a public nature, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as we are led in song.